crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Christopher Eames, your host, and we have a special interview lined up for you today. Many of our listeners are aware of our excavations that we participate in uh, in Jerusalem under the leadership of Dr. Elot Mazar. And what many may not realize is that our organization's partnership in excavating with the Mazar family goes back about 50 years to the days of our predecessor, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. And Dr. Elot Mazar's grandfather, and one of the founding fathers of biblical archaeology, Professor Benjamin Mazar. Now, that relationship between Mr. Armstrong and Professor Mazar began in November 1968, just after, or, or the year following, Jerusalem's recapture by the Jews after the Six-Day War. Now, there was immediate interest in conducting uh, excavations around the Temple Mount, and, and several U.S.-based institutions uh, attempted to have a, a stake in the project to contribute to that project, but only one was chosen, and that was Ambassador College, led by Chancellor Herbert Armstrong. And today, our, our college goes by that name, Armstrong College. Now, Ambassador College and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem shared a joint 50-50 partnership in what have been the biggest excavations ever undertaken in the land of Israel. Now, these were known as, uh, as the Big Dig, and these excavations took place from 1968 to 1976, primarily on the land leading up to and abutting the southern wall of the Temple Mount. So these uh, were the excavations that preceded, and you could say cleared the way for our excavations today, uh, the very same areas of excavation with our workers belonging to Armstrong College, working under the same uh, Mazar family under their archaeological direction. So these, back in the 60s and 70s, were the foundational years. And so for the special radio show and podcast today, we're going to interview one of those individuals who participated on the early excavations. This was a member of Ambassador College who worked on the Big Dig and who, I believe, even today, several decades on, continues to take online classes with Armstrong College. So without further ado, welcome Mr. Jack Sanner. Uh, why don't you uh, explain to our audience just a little bit about where you're from and, and how you came to join in on the excavations in Israel? I'm from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. That's the western part of Oregon. Uh, lived here most of my life. Uh, went to Ambassador College down in Pasadena from 70 to 73. That is 1970 to 73. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And how I ended up going to the dig was I actually didn't apply. About two weeks before the students were to leave, I got called into the dean of students' office one morning early. Mm -hmm. And while I was walking over there past the new construction for what became Ambassador Auditorium, I was trying to figure out what I was in trouble for. <laughs> and... Uh, Dr. Robert Oberlander was the dean of students, and I sat down, and he said, well, the reason I called you in 
is I want to know why you haven't applied for the dig the last two years. And I said, well, I didn't feel like I could afford it. College debts, a uh, couple of thousand dollars back then was a lot today. And he said, well, I'm going to convince you that you can't afford it because we want you to go. He convinced me. I told him I'd fill out the application. He said, don't, don't worry about it. I've already filled it out. <laughs> so he was fairly confident that I would accept. Wow. Well, what, what do you think it was that, that made him choose you specifically? Were you, were you working in a certain department that lent itself to, to the dig? Or was there some other kind of uh, thing that, that they thought they, they would choose you even though you hadn't applied? I worked for the portfolio, which was the precursor to the worldwide news. It was the college newspaper. Okay. And I think they expected some articles from me, although we didn't have internet or computers or any of that. So it had to be handwritten or typed and sent by mail. But there was that. There was the fact that I was a couple of years older than the average student. I'd had a car wreck when I was 18 and took two years to get past it oh wow yep. so i was older and some of the faculty knew that i had uh, a great deal of personal interest in archaeology and history so they wanted me to go okay yeah well i i was wondering what what were your sort of thoughts or expectations about joining the dig um, you, you said you had an interest in, in archaeology and history and that type of thing. So I guess you had some kind of expectations of what it would have been like uh, before you went. And, and did that kind of line up with, with what you saw when you got there? Was it what you expected? I had no expectations. <laughs> I guess that's a good thing sometimes. The only expectation I had was, was I going to be able to get a passport in time. I had mm. two weeks, and they said it would take six weeks. And oh, wow. I was actually standing in line to get on the bus. I figured the college wants me to go, so something will happen. Standing in a line to get on the bus the day we left, and somebody from the passport office came down the line saying, is there a Jack Sander here? I've got a passport <laughs> for him. So oh, wow. that was my yep. best expectation. And then, of course, as I... Uh, mentioned earlier, we got there just like three days after what came to be called the Lod Airport Massacre. Mm. Um, and yeah, can can you explain a little bit about that to our listeners, uh, just to familiarize just with the kind of upheaval that was going on at that time? That I guess you could say nearly nearly would have stopped you going, uh, or at least on 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 the time frame that you were working on. It delayed us by about three days. We were in Brickett Wood, the campus in Brickett Wood, England. Uh, I think we were supposed to spend about one day there. We ended up spending about three because on May 30th, three terrorists, uh, actually Japanese terrorists, uh, trained in Lebanon, decided to start killing people at the Lod Airport, which was the only international airport in Israel at the time. And they killed about 29 people, injured 60 or 80 others. Probably one of the biggest uh, terrorist acts in that period of history. So we were delayed getting in, obviously, for them to do what they had to do at the airport. And uh, I remember when we got off 
the airplane. They parked the plane out on the tarmac. It was like 50 to 100 yards from the airport itself with a ramp to get down off the airplane. And I was carrying a guitar case. Uh, another fellow was too. And we both got the same treatment. I got about halfway down the ramp and three guards with submachine guns were standing down there and they said, drop the case, which I did. <laughs> and so did the other fellow till they could check them out, make sure there wasn't anything in there. And then they let us go into the terminal, put us on buses and we bust up to Jerusalem. Okay. Wow. So that's quite the initiation then uh, to, to coming in on the dig. Yeah, I have to say, with with all the times I've been to Israel, it's it's never been like that. Fortunately, um, I remember talking to one of my fellow excavation workers, and she would talk about taking the bus quite frequently. And they had that spate of bus bombings. I think it was in the early two thousands, and and those kinds of things that make you think more carefully about simple things like flying or or, or taking a bus ride. And uh, she talked about how she just did not take bus buses anymore for a while after that, after she heard a conversation on the bus. They were arguing about, should we leave the windows open or closed? And, and it was getting a bit, uh, a bit cold, I guess. And so they wanted to close the windows, but one of the passengers was saying, well, we need to keep them open in case there's an explosion in here and, and something to do with the repercussion or, or the percussion of the explosion. So to even have to think about that kind of thing when you're just riding a bus or going on an airplane carrying a guitar case it's quite a quite a different way of thinking but obviously Israel being in a really difficult part of the world between a rock and a hard place there there among <laughs> among the other nations in the in the Middle East uh, anyway though uh, coming up to to Israel and and coming on to the dig can you sort of summarize what a typical day on the dig was like for for you personally for your you and your fellow students we were staying in an Arab sector about a half a mile from the dig site in the Shepherd Hotel. And we had the largest group that had ever been there. And I don't know if they ever had a group that large again, but we had a hundred diggers. Uh, we took over the hotel and we had no outside helpers at all, other than there were three or four students who paid their own way over. Of course, the college financed all of the applicants uh, and we had two or three families parents that had decided to uh, to go as well and they helped uh, none of the volunteers were required to be there every single day but they were most of the time so we had about a hundred students there when we got there the dig site was an a flat open field directly below the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And I had a hard time identifying exactly where we were in relation to where the kids were in 2018. Because right. it's changed so much. Yeah, and they painted that mosque. It was blown out on the side from a, a bombing in 1969, a firebomb. And it was silver. <laughs> and somebody showed me a picture of that whole area and it was a nice sloping hill it had these uh, ancient walls that were uncovered and it had this green mosque sitting up there and i said something's wrong it looks right but that's not the al-aqsa mosque and this lady whispered to me 
Jack. It is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They just painted it. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't realize that. With the Dome of the Rock as well, a lot of people think about this beautiful golden dome uh, just north of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But, of course, that was only gold-plated, I think, in the 40s or, or 50s. Right. So it, 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 it was a similar gray color. Or it might have been silver. I, I can't remember now. But yeah, the whole area, even the mosques themselves have changed recently. And it looks a lot different. But of course, those pictures from the early days, when you see uh, just the flat field that it used to be is incredible. Even in, in, in part descending on down into the city of David, very few houses in, those er- in, in the earlier days uh, just the perfect area to excavate. Of course, now you've got a lot of houses that have been built up and it makes it very difficult, in the city of David at least, the, the Ophel area just south of the Temple Mount, that's still a, an archaeological area, archaeological park, uh, but it just makes it that much more difficult um, to dig in the city of David especially. So, so what was a, a, a typical day like in terms of uh i know for us we would get up about 4 30 in the morning uh really early mornings for us on the on the dig site uh in the last few years and and we'd sort of get things together and get to the dig site by about 6 30 would have about eight hours worth of digging taking us up to about 2 30 in the afternoon with a few few breaks in between and then we would end the day at, at 2 30 i guess to try and uh, escape a lot of the afternoon heat uh, and and we would kind of apportion the diggers around different parts of, of the dig site um, based on what we were digging at the time. So was it sort of the same for you back then uh, in the early 70s? Or did you have a specific area that you were assigned? Or Well, we had 100 students and we had a, a big area to cover. So we all had crews of about five to seven people uh, Professor Mazar staked out of about a 15 square foot area for each crew. Mine was directly below the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and I had a view of three armed guards looking at us every single day. Oh, okay. So there were Israeli soldiers up on the southern wall? Right. Okay. And there was a line that Professor Mazar said, do not go past this line. If you're lucky, they will fire a warning shot. But if you're not lucky, they will shoot you. Things were very, very tense. They even had guards down around the Wailing Wall with guns. Uh, It was a very tense time. So none of us got close to that line. Wow, okay. They would stake out the areas for us. And we worked with picks, I mean, big picks and shovels because we literally were cleaning out a bunch of rocks and, and uh, refuse. Once in a while, a piece of broken pottery would show up, but for the most part, it was rocks. We figured that summer we moved about 350 tons of debris from that field. Um, my particular hole, I call it the hole. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you look in the team magazine you'll see a picture of it i took a picture of it that still existed today (laughs) after i got it dug out you can see it from the top and about two days into the dig we had discovered this uh circular opening in the rocks and it turned out to be a cistern that was about 
eight feet in diameter, I suppose, and about 10 or 12 feet deep. And uh, we had got down about a foot deep. And one of the fellows hit this pot with a big pickaxe and shattered it. And I was team leader, so he called me over and he said, Jack, I just broke a pot and it doesn't look like the rest of this stuff. And that's where some of my background came in handy because we were digging, everything was Byzantine. Well, the okay. world is full of Byzantine artifacts and other things, chapels and all this. And I knew it was way before that, like hundreds of years earlier. So I stopped everything. We sat there for about two hours till somebody got a hold of Professor Mazar. And when when he came out, the first question he asked was, who stopped everybody from working? And I thought, oh, trouble again. I said, I did. He said, why? And I said, because this isn't Byzantine. He looked at it, he looked at me, and he said, okay, everybody out of this hole, except you. The upshot of that was I spent my entire summer digging out that cistern stuck in a hole in the ground while everybody else got to enjoy the sunshine. <laughs> but it was full of Herodian uh, artifacts. So that, for me, it was just fantastic. It was a dream. Uh, I found intact, most of it was pottery. But uh, at one point, I... I finally got to see what Dr. M or Professor Mazar looked like excited. This white-haired older gentleman was very friendly and came to visit a lot when he found out what we were doing in that hole. <laughs> but I found this glass, looked like a test tube, that was about six inches long. And, of course, when they put me in the hole, no more picks, no more shovels. They had a little tiny hand pick. Uh, toothbrush and a couple of other little tools and of course a camera and I found this embedded in one of the walls and I carefully removed it it was perfectly intact looked like a little test tube but it was milky colored with a lot of shades of blue in it I showed it to him and he got excited because what he had found is that there had been written records of what was called a tear jar that a princess of nobility would save up her tears, literally. She would cry tears into this thing and fill it up, and it would become part of her dowry to the prince. These tears were for the prince, to the prince that she married. Well, there were written records of that, but there had never been one of those found. And so we found one perfectly intact, and that excited him because it was something totally different. Yeah, that's that's a really impressive find. And, and, and it brings to mind this past excavation we've had uh, where, where we found a little uh, a glass vessel as well, a tiny little glass vessel, similar, it, sound, it sounds like, to what you were describing. Uh, and Dr. Elat Mazar, of course, Professor Mazar's granddaughter, um, and, and it sounds like she's a lot like her grandfather then. She gets very excited uh, very, very nice woman, uh, and and really passionate. But it's 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 great to see her really excited like that when when you've discovered a little artifact, and especially a glass, a, a complete glass uh, tube or glass uh, glass item, because they can just break so easily. Obviously, when when it's in amongst a lot of of trash, and so I don't know if it's 
the same type of thing as you're describing. Uh, but she was very excited by that. But but it was that same kind of a bluish colored sort of a gray um, right. type type vessel. Really, really rare to find something like that. Right. And, and I can imagine why he would be so excited about hitting Herodian material because if if I understand right, you talked about going through a lot of Byzantine material. You would have gone through a lot of Muslim period material. I think there was, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, Umayyad palaces there or, or one or two big ones there that, that you dug through. Uh, I think the Mamluk period as well. A whole lot of different Muslim levels and, and a whole lot of trash uh, from those periods and even on up into the modern period right at the top. But, but yeah, to be able to, to hit Herodian remains... Uh, we've kind of had that experience on our dig where we're going and going through Byzantine material and finally you hit Herodian material or, or in our case, uh, Iron Age material. It's, it's a big boost. Well, what, what happened in the cistern was simply, it, it either happened at one of, with one of the Herods or most probably we figured the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was a water cistern. And so instead of it being scattered all over the, uh, the field, somebody just took it upon themselves to fill that cistern up with what to them was a bunch of junk. The Romans just filled it up, flattened it over so they could build on it. So it's, it seemed like the, uh, do you think someone could have been hiding in there during the destruction of Jerusalem right up around 70 AD? Um, that's that's what we found on our dig site. Uh, a lot of um, evidence of 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 people who are attempting to to I guess hide in the cave uh, that we were digging, who would have brought food stores in there. So so a lot of vessels, a lot of large vessels. Do you think that what that's what may have happened in the cistern? Perhaps right at the end of the siege, someone was trying to hide in there. It's possible because when I got down to the bottom. I noticed a discoloration. I was digging it around to the bedrock, and I found a discoloration on one side that looked like dirt, so I hit it with my pick, and it was, and it opened up another chamber, which kept me there all summer long. <laughs> that was about four or five feet round or squared that was also full of artifacts, which would have made a nice little hidey hole because it wasn't part of the main cistern so it's possible we didn't okay. see any remains of you know bones or anything like that i didn't i was the only one in there but yeah um well well and finding those chambers really exciting as well we we've been there done that on our on our dig as well but it can be frustrating at times because it's happened a couple of times when it's right at the end of the dig and you open up this new opening or chamber, and uh, you just want to keep digging it. But of course, Doctor Mazar is there as the voice of reason, and well, no, we can't we can't extend the excavation on into this this new area yet. We're right at the end of the dig season, so it can be frustrating. But but it, it it's a real exciting little buzz when you when you just open something that's been what closed off for two thousand years untouched. Professor Mazar was not quite as uh, we we had a different type of dig though. Uh, he, he made sure that I finished that hole before I quit. 
He, his favorite saying to me was, how are you doing, Jack? And I would say, doing fine. And he'd say, good, good, keep digging, keep digging. <laughs> and, uh, two or three times he brought this little girl around with him. He just introduced her as his daughter. Of course, I was 20 years, 22 years old at the time. So a little kid was just a little kid. And it, it turned out to be a lot bizarre. So... Okay, did you ever end up talking to her a little bit, or or she just more or less saw you and, and he introduced her? He introduced my crew to her. She said hi, probably in Hebrew. We said hi back, and I'm sorry to say I ignored her from then on. <laughs> it's incredible to hear those stories and to think about it now, because I see her as... Well, I think she just turned uh, 60, I believe, 60 or 61. And, and I know of her as just a very lovely, motherly type uh, type woman, uh, very, uh, very good archaeologist, very down to earth, very, very business minded. And, and if she has tough decisions to make or, or, or anything like that, she'll make them. She knows what she wants and she gets it on the dig site, but very motherly and warm. And so to hear of your experiences and to hear about her grandfather like that, who, who I know she really speaks highly of and really cherished that relationship, it's, it's really interesting to go back uh, to that time and think about that. And of course, there's, there's a special connection with, with you as well, because you're, what, our, what our listeners, uh, many of them won't know, is that your grandson actually participated on the digs this past year. And of course, he was able to talk to Elat Mazar and talk about you and say that you were on those digs with her grandfather. And and I think he talked about your, your hole that you were digging in. Uh, and and I'm, I can't remember what she, what she said to your grandson, uh, Justice, about that. Uh, but, but she really thought it was a special connection. It really is a special connection. Uh, so about that, what were your thoughts about about Justice, your grandson, going on the dig? Did you sort of have any pep talks or, or give him some shared wisdom? I told him if he had time, take a guitar because he'd need it. <laughs> I told him what Professor Mazar told all of us, immerse yourself in the local culture, the traditions, get to know the people, not just people directing the dig, but the people of Jerusalem. Um, I told him to study some history so he would know what he was doing and uh, eat the food, eat the local yeah, the food. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. The bacteria is different. You're going to get Montezuma's revenge, Pharaoh's revenge, or Buddha's revenge. And you know what I'm talking about. And uh, the way Professor Mazar put it, he says, you're going to get it. You might as well get it over with so you can enjoy the local food. So I did. I told Justice yeah. too, and he. I remember. I remember Justice got that. <laughs> actually, it wasn't a laughing matter at the time. He was actually hit pretty hard. Uh, of any of us, uh, I think. I don't think many of us got uh, were laid out like that from from an illness, or at least not for very long. But he was for a, for a good period of time. But then it was all all over. But but. Um, and, and not to obviously put off anyone from, from going there <laughs> at all. But I remember he was talking to you about that, actually, and called it the Pharaoh's Revenge. Or I, I remember him bringing that up. 
but yeah, the food is brilliant over there. The hummus, the tahini, um, brilliant food, Peter. And, and, and it, I remember during the breaks on the dig site, absolutely brilliant, just sitting around with all the other diggers, the, the other Israelis there, and just everyone sharing their food and, and very authentic style, healthy cuisine compared to a lot of the food uh that that you have growing up in america i suppose uh very very healthy fresh food um shepherd hotel uh, packed lunches for us uh so we took box lunches with us from the hotel they had them ready we'd get up in the morning early like you said and we'd be done about two or two thirty and then take trips into the old city or various places. I ended up having relatives who were living in Jerusalem, so I got to go a few places that some of the others didn't, but um, it was fantastic. All right, well, we'll take a short break there, but don't go away. We have much more to get into in our conversation with Mr. Jack Sanna on his participation in our early Jerusalem excavations nearly 50 years ago. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. If you've just joined us, we have a special guest on the line today, Mr. Jack Sanna, who was part of our earliest excavations that took place around the Temple Mount uh, in 1972, in his case, and, and for the wider excavations, they took place from the 60s to the 70s. Now, these were known collectively as the Big Dig, and these were the largest excavations to take place in Israel they were led by Professor Benjamin Mazar with a 50-50 partnership between our organization, led by Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Now today, that relationship continues between our Armstrong College and Professor Mazar's granddaughter, Dr. Elot Mazar, who, who leads the, the modern excavations. All right, Mr. Sanna, to get right back into what it was like on those early days of the dig... Uh, yeah, you mentioned another another story about a, a desert market and and nearly selling something that you shouldn't have accidentally or someone. Someone. <laughs> this was a once a year get together of Bedouin tribes that still at that time they were traveling some of the old trade routes to the Middle East in caravans with camels and flocks and families up towards Sinai area, which was open to us at the time. And they would have this huge open market where they would trade and sell things. And, of course, a lot of tourists were attracted to it. And Dr. Martin, who was in charge of our dig at the time, Dr. Ernest Martin from uh, Pasadena, one of our instructors, took us there. And just like at AC Today, girls don't go anywhere unescorted. So I had about three young ladies with me, came up to the stall and this guy kept looking at one of the girls who was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Texas girl. And I didn't really understand 
That, that's why it's good to immerse yourself in the local cu- culture. I didn't understand that with the Bedouins, they did have many wives. They did trade for women. And so he was looking at her and he was pointing to his camels and stuff. And I was just shaking my head. No, he thought I was bartering. He thought I was haggling. And in the meantime, I was looking in my little book in the specific area to communicate with the Bedouins because it was different than regular Arabic and trying to find a phrase to get out of this. Like I didn't know exactly what was happening, but I was getting an idea. And when he got to six camels and 40, um, six camels and 40 goats, and he kept pointing at her, I got the impression, I, I understood what he was doing. And all I could say was, God help me. <laughs> well, that's, I opened, that, up, that, opened up my book and I found the phrase, not for sale. <laughs> wow. So it seems like you're quite good at bartering then after all of that. If you got him to six camels and 40 goats. <laughs> I wasn't even trying. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. That's quite the culture change. That's for sure. When the girl realized what had happened, she hit me <laughs> hard. <laughs> wow. Other than that, the rest of that uh, that little trip was wonderful. Um, our dig was different in that we were funded a lot with a lot more money for students as well. Mm, okay. And uh, so we got to make a lot of trips that, that you fellows and gals didn't get to. Uh, we went down to the Dead Sea. We floated in the Dead Sea and swam the Gulf of Aqaba, I think. Um, I can't, no, it wasn't that far. We went to Masada and then snorkeled in the Red Sea. Okay. Wow. Uh, to all of the sites around Jerusalem and went to uh, Mount Hermon, I think it was in the south. Isn't that Mount Hermon? Mm. And uh, Masada. Um, Armageddon, the Megiddo, the, the ruins of Megiddo, and a lot of places. Um, went swimming in, uh, on the sand dunes of Gaza in the Mediterranean one Sunday. So we had a lot of opportunities. At the end of the, the dig, we, we got to go to um, Greece for three or four days, and then a week and a half tour of Europe, and then back to Bricketwood campus, um, for a few days before returning to uh, our respective campuses. Yeah, that 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 definitely sounds like quite the ad- adventure. I certainly haven't been on all of those sorts of uh, trips that you would have taken, or at least not on any one single excavation. We didn't do all of those trips. I guess when you put them all together, the the ones I've been able to be a part of, we've nearly come close to to a lot of the the travel, uh, when you put it all together like that, but things like, uh, swimming just off of Gaza and that type of thing, obviously that's, that's nothing you could dream of doing. Uh, now, uh, we actually, in 2012, when I was there, we, we did a short video segment on the Gaza border when, uh, Operation Pillar of Defense was happening, saw rockets coming out of Gaza, uh, rockets were flying into Gaza, that, that type thing. Uh, as we were talking about at the top of the, the program, it's such a hotbed uh, place for 
for, for any violence that could flare up between Israel and then any of the, the Arab countries. So you said this was uh, 1973, right? 72. 72, okay. So this would have come just before the Yom Kippur War. Golda Meir had invited all of us through Mr. Armstrong to a performance of children from all over Israel at one of the Knesset buildings, I guess. Uh, the performance was for the government people and she extended the invitation to us. So I actually got to meet Golda Meir at that performance. And about a month after that, we decided that we were going to reciprocate. It was a performance of, of dance and song, native dance and song. So we decided we were going to reciprocate. So we organized, and we actually sent a personal invitation to Golda Meir and her cabinet and Hebrew University staff. And we had over 200 of them show up. She did not. But we did about an hour and a half routine of good old American dancing and song with guitars and a piano and and some choreography that I knew how to do for some of the dances. And uh, so we had quite a performance for them. I, I'm sure the staff at the Shepherd Hotel was pretty confounded when they saw these cars, nice cars come up with people dressed in suits for an open air. We were outside in the courtyard performance and I'm sure they had guards out there too because some of them were government officials, but that turned out to be quite a quite an experience, the reciprocation. Right, quite a blast. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they would have enjoyed your American renditions. Um, and, and to meet the first female Prime Minister of Israel as well. Um, really interesting, really interesting lady, uh, Golda Meir, uh, just reading about some about her and, and the things she did in office. Uh, she was very friendly. She loved Mr. Armstrong. I think and therefore she loved us. Was it the mother of Israel or something she was called? Uh, just a, just right. a special woman. Um, right. Hired school teacher. That, that's what her profession was before? Okay. She had been a school teacher. Mm. Okay. She, that's why she was so involved with the children, too. Yeah. Okay. So how long was the excavation for? Through the summer. Okay. Okay. And then you said uh, Dr. Ernest Martin was in charge of your, your larger group? Right. Well, there was a team of archaeologists that were sorting and dating and and all that. Uh, I think about four regular archaeologists and their assistants who were busy all day long every day just going through what we found. And uh, that was it, other than, than our college students and a few of their parents. That was, that was the dig. Okay. And we went through... Uh, I believe about mid-August, and then took the week and a half or two weeks trip to Europe, and then back to Bricketwood, and then home. We all ended up getting home after classes started. So a little bit of makeup work to do, but it was well worth it. I'm sure that that was similar to me with, with one of the excavations. We actually had to miss one or two classes entirely because we had just missed 
uh, too much time already for them. Definitely well worth it, though. Uh, have you been back to Israel since that time, since uh, 72? No, I have not. But I'll tell you, when I saw my son over there, and he told me when he told Elat Mazar that his grandpa had worked with her grandpa, she said, that's just marvelous. No, it's miraculous. And in a way, I think it was. I think the connection between the two digs, when I looked at the lay of the land and realized Mr. Armstrong's purpose was to remove the rubble of centuries. And he did that. Mm. We did that. So you guys could go down and find your little caves <laughs> and pick out some really good stuff. <laughs> right, and we're, we're certainly grateful to all of you for doing that because I know you went through meters and meters of rubble and Muslim period finds and, and Byzantine finds and uh, Herodian finds. I think you, you touched on some Hasmonean finds as well in certain spots possibly. And, and, and it was just perfectly set for when, when we came along. Now it's half a century later, or, uh, or not quite that uh, from 1972, but now, now we come along, uh, and like Dr. Mazar said, that miraculous-type reuniting relationship there with, with Armstrong College and with the Mazar family, and, and, and we start digging through these layers, and within, I remember in one case, within minutes we had hit Iron Age material, material belonging to to the Hebrew Bible, the kingdom period uh, from King David up until the fall of Jerusalem, uh, 585 BC. Uh, it's it's really miraculous in, in that way as well, the way it worked out. You guys did all the prep work for us, which we're very grateful for. And then uh, we come along and, and it's just picking up from where you left off and, and boom, straight into the biblical period uh, material. I do have one last piece of advice for you young people. What you really need is for an old guy to be over there with you. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> really, you need an old guy over there with you to watch you work. <laughs> To, to, that, was, that was my first thought when I, I knew Justice, my grandson, was going to be there. Was, Man, I've got to go. But I didn't. Right, well, well. Maybe I'll be to be a private citizen going over there at the next one. We'll see. Well, that would be great. We've, we've certainly got uh, more digs that we're hoping to, to continue in future. We don't know when. Obviously, uh, uh, praying for mir miracles there as well. Uh, uh, but we'd certainly love to have you or, or anyone else uh, like that just to come over and to see, especially those who have been on those early digs, uh, like yourself. I don't don't believe there's too many too many around uh, who would uh, who would be up for for that anymore. But but certainly to have that that wisdom there as well and and a bit of experience and direction. I couldn't, I couldn't come and see. I wouldn't be there five minutes till my hands were dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's 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 the way it is in Jerusalem and on the dig site. You can't you can't help yourself. It's it's right. something really magical about it that you've got this plot of land, this 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 area that you're digging, this flat piece of ground, 
and it's yours. And you get a pickaxe and you get told what to do and you just dig and who knows what could be under there. And it's just the, that aura of what are you going to find? Are you going to find uh, something golden, some some kind of pottery piece? Usually it's not gold, but but uh, even the small pottery pieces, when, it, when it's your first or, or second piece, it's really impressive. And, oh, wow, there's a fingerprint on this piece from a a unique fingerprint from someone who lived 2,000, 3,000 years ago. It's really a, a, a touching experience, really, uh, yes. really is with connecting with people who lived so long ago. Well, that's that's where we'll have to leave it then, Mr. Sanna. Uh, I think we've run out of time. So uh, thank you very much for this interview and for coming on today's program. Thank you very much for the invitation. The pleasure's all ours. Well, that's all we have time for on today's program. Thank you very much, Mr. Sanna. You've been listening to to Jack Sanna, who participated on The Big Dig, our early Jerusalem excavations that took place on the Ophel in the area up and around the southern wall of the Temple Mount, uh, in, in his case personally, just underneath the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, for a future program, I'm hoping to interview another worker who served on another phase of our early digs under our founder, Herbert W. Armstrong. This worker served in the City of David under the direction of the famous archaeologist Yigel Shiloh. Anyway, I haven't locked that interview down yet, so I won't mention her name, although if she's listening to this, I suppose the cat's out of the bag. So thank you for listening to today's program, and if you have any feedback, please do send that to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.